Hello, my beautiful beanies, and welcome to The Bean for... Oh, it's the weekend edition. First of the yesterday's news. I am Glenn C.B., and we're looking back not just at yesterday, but the day before. Sunday, Saturday, it's the weekend. What do you know? Hey, uh, so Federer's called it quits. Jack's going to miss him, apparently. Uh, we're going to um, preserve our productive land, and we'll talk to the minister in charge of that. Uh, we've got a Spice Girl on the show this morning, and somebody's going to tell us how to raise our kids, so that'll be fun. Uh, but before any of that, yes, uh, uh, weird to talk about the Bledisloe Cup, given that it didn't actually happen in the weekend, it happened on Thursday, but anyway... Yes, the coach. You said on Thursday night you believe that uh, time-wasting call on Bernard Foley was the mm. right one at the end. Um, do you stand by that? Absolutely. Yeah, it's um, it was a it was a call. There's a lot building up into that into that particular period where there's a, a number of delays and things, and and ultimately, you know, I I, I think the debates at two levels. The, the first debate is is time wasting in a game, and I think that that's worthy of a separate conversation. But it's um. Because we've we've been trying to drive that message all year, to be fair, with teams how they slow things down. But um, the second thing here is is that the the ref was very clear in his instructions, and and the game has to give the authority to the referee. And when he's asking players to do something and speed things up, it's our job to respond to it. As a rugby product, do you think that was the right call for the the fans watching to to penalise uh, a player for time wasting though? No, I just think I just answered that, Elliot. So. You know the the game is run by the referee. He's he said time off. He warned them. He said time on, and then he asked them twice to play it. So I actually don't really see the issue with it. <laughs> what else is he going to say? Uh, we're so awesome if he came out and said, "No, oh, it was a terrible call. We should have lost that game." <laughs> Thanks, ref. It would have been fun. Uh, right now, uh, Roger Federer has probably been on the end of a few bad calls in his time. But he's probably never really complained about it because he's so boring. Anyway, some people liked him, including Jack Tape. His anticipation and court sense are otherworldly, and his footwork is the best in the game. That's Roger Federer as religious experience. I, um, once upon a time, spent an afternoon with the Nike footwear designer who worked with Roger Federer to design his personalised playing shoes. And the designer told me he'd been surprised to discover how unusually wide Federer's feet are. It kind of makes sense when you think about it. Wider feet presumably allow a player to balance and change direction, to set himself much more efficiently than someone with narrower feet. Federer popularised several tennis shots in top-level tennis, the so-called squash shot and the Sabre, the S-A-B-R, sneak attack by Roger, in which he surprised his opponents by running up to the service box just as their service toss hung in the air. But it was his balance, it was his balance that made that magnificent backhand so glorious, so, so perfect. I was lucky to see Federer live at several Grand Slams over the years. He hasn't been at his best for some time now. Like all of us, he's getting older, and his retirement was inevitable. But sometimes, if I'm home alone, I will still sit down and watch highlights of Federer's greatest moments on YouTube. It's like, it's like sitting in a room with Beethoven as he knocked out his Sixth Symphony. Fluid. Dazzling. Genius. Almost had me convinced right up until the Beethoven thing at the end. Like, is that 
do, do you want to sit there while the person's composing it or when it's actually being played for the first time? Because I think it's a bit tedious when they're actually... It, that, to me, that's like comparing it to going and watching Federer practice. Which would be even more boring than... Anyway, as you can tell, I'm not a massive Federer fan. Don't mind a bit of Beethoven though. Saw a bit of Beethoven yesterday, actually. Pretty good. Um, right. No, seriously, I literally went to the St. Matthew's Chamber Orchestra and watched the Beethoven. I know, I know, you weren't expecting that, were you? Uh, we'll, we'll have some more great music for you uh, shortly. Spy Skills music. Uh, but before any of that, uh, David Parker, uh, he is singing the song, and that might be music to uh, Market Growers' ears. Is that market gardeners is? Keep some of the productive land and not build houses on it? Is that what we're hoping is going to happen? How long have you guys been working on this legislation for? Uh, since 2017, we've been working through the details of how you better protect our highest class soils so that they're available to produce food in the future. Who defines what highly productive land is? Is it, you, is it the government or the, the councils? <laughs> Uh, well, most highly productive soils are classes one, two, and three, and there have long been soil classification uh, categories in New Zealand. The next thing that happens is that councils map those soils more accurately within their districts, uh, and uh, and then decide which of them need to be protected. Have you, have you had feedback from growers around this? Because there might be a few who've been planning to sort of sell up. Um, is it going to? Is there unintended consequences that might well do that before you can get this in play? Well, look, the vast majority of growers want their soils to be protected for growing vegetables in the future because they believe in the importance of growing vegetables and you know and fruit. Uh, there are the occasional person that would you know coming to the end of their career might rather subdivide uh, and sell it off as a lifestyle block, but most of them think that's not the right outcome because we need those soils. I wonder if it's... So it's all about protecting the soils, right? Do they actually have to stay where they are? I'm just wondering, could we... If people do want to sell them off and subdivide, could they then also just sell the soil to, I don't know, New World, and as part of their little gardens thing, not only do you get the seeds, but you get the soils as well. And then we keep it going that way. Just ideas, just ideas. I don't know how practical the ideas are, but they're ideas. Right, um, uh, Mel C used to be a Spice Girl, Melanie Chisholm. Um, if you don't know which one, that was the sporty one. Um, uh, is she still a Spice Girl? Once a Spice Girl, always a Spice Girl? Anyway, here she is. I know it was a really tough decision to write this book. Why now? Yeah, you know what? It has been difficult, and I, I think... Really, until the last few days, I've stopped having these moments of sheer panic. Um, have I done the right thing? And, you know, I think because for anyone, you know, your life has had so many twists and turns. And the honesty I wanted to portray in this book, it, it's quite daunting to to put it out there. But I've thought for a little while now, you know, it's it's an incredible story. You know, I'm so proud of my achievements, obviously, with the Spice Girls and throughout my career, but also, you know, the, the personal challenges that I've had to face and overcome. And I thought it was it was a good opportunity to share that with people. You make the note in the book that it really took you until the 2019 Spice World Tour for you to recognise and appreciate what you'd achieved. Why did it take so long? 
I have no idea. I really don't know. And I think, you know, the way we reflect on our past, it just continues to evolve, doesn't it? And I think mm. for all of us girls, getting back on stage 25 years later and seeing those crowds, like, you know, we were playing to 70, 80,000 people every night and it was magical. And I think it was just had a huge impact on us all. And we realised how we'd affected not only a generation of people, but younger people who continue to discover the Spice Girls. It's funny, isn't it? I, nobody, would anybody call their band the Spice Girls now? Um, so yeah, she's got a book out. Uh, it uh, outlines her mental health challenges and things as well. So that's quite a good read, actually. Um, we're going to finish up here uh, with Maggie Dent. I think she writes books too about you know telling people how to parent their kids, how to bring up their kids. She's another one of these people who tells people what to do. As the mother of four boys, what's it like writing a book about raising girls? I have become known as the boy champion, so it really is. Um, it has been really interesting, Jack, and the reason that I became so curious was I'm now a nanny, a blessed grandmother to seven, and I was watching these four little granddaughters of mine and I just started to see things that I didn't see with my boys and I started realising, gee whiz, they're sharp early. Yeah. Gosh, they don't forget anything. Um, gee, they like to talk. And I thought, is there any real evidence of the difference? And if we... We're raising girls today, Jack. We know that our teen and tween girls aren't doing well. They're struggling with high levels of mental illness. And I thought, I wonder if there's something I can do in that window out of curiosity that helps parents and educators know and understand them better. So just how different are boys and girls? <laughs> oh, my goodness. This is quite, it's, it's quite a political question these days. It eh? is. Yeah. It has, and also we know it's not all boys and not all girls because yeah. gender is fluid. Let's get that one out the road. But we do know that there is, there's not a lot of absolute empirical science around it. The anecdotal evidence is just enormous. There are a couple of things we find. Um, and it's it's not as though their brains are different. They kind of um, are mature at different rates. So we already knew there was a fragility in little boys' brains, yeah. which is why they often are a bit behind our girls um, when they transition into big school. And I've been writing about that for a long time. They're not always as ready, as mature. They're often needing to still move a lot more. They don't listen very well. They don't remember very well. So they can <laughs> struggle. Oh, I see that explains a lot. That's what happened to me, obviously. Um, my fragile boy brain broke. I broke it. And it, like Humpty Dumpty style, can never put it back together again. It all comes together now. I'm Glenn ZB. Um, every now and again, I'm in touch with the feminine side of my brain. And then I lose contact. And I don't see it for a while. Uh, but I will hopefully see you again tomorrow for another News Talk ZB. Listener.